teachers who are working to educate not just students in Ithaca, New York, but students across the country about climate change. If you do a Google search for something, you'll get more answers than you could possibly deal with. And how do you sort through that? And particularly if you're not an expert. We'll sit down with Raymond Gazi, an Ithaca College professor. And then all of a sudden, shooting started. And it was just totally dramatic. It was. And I didn't really think about it much. It just was clear to me that um, I should be taking pictures of this. All that and more tonight on Ithaca Now. You're listening to Ithaca Now, WICB's weekly news podcast focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Himadri Sait, and thanks for joining us. On tonight's episode, we'll hear about an organization that is working to make accurate information about climate change accessible to every student in the United States. And we will look it will take a look back at political turmoil in the 1960s as we sit down with Ithaca College professor Raymond Gauzy. But first, here's Selin Tudor and William Streckless with this week's Community Beat. <laughs> It'll now be a little easier to get a better understanding of the foliage in Ithaca. The city recently published four tree tour maps. These maps cover four regions of the city with each distinct tree type in the area being shown. A brief yet detailed description accompanies each tree type. Ithaca's first ever plant swap will be next Saturday, November 16th. The event is hosted by Michaeline, a 32-year-old florist and garden center in Ithaca. The attendees will have the chance to talk to the shop's owner about plant upkeep and swap their plants with other attendees. The swap will take place from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. in Michaeline. The Tompkins County budget has been approved for 2020, giving a glimpse into what Ithaca will officially be investing in for the coming year. Notable changes include more funding for affordable housing and a very minor increase in property owner taxes. Also of interest is that the budget accommodates a potential charge on paper grocery bags. A public hearing will take place on November 19th at 5.30pm for its citizens to weigh in on whether or not the charge should formally become law. City of Ithaca passed the 2020 budget Wednesday night. The new budget is just over $80 million, with an increase from last year's $76.4 million. The majority of changes to the budget are regarding the Green New Deal, as the planning department of the city gets new funding. The majority of the city's revenues come from property taxes, which will amount to the biggest portion of the budget. The Ithaca campus community is in grieving after the sudden passing of a resident director. 28-year-old resident director Michael Palumbo was found dead in his apartment the evening of November 7th. He had only started working at Ithaca this last August, but made a tremendous impact on the department with the time he spent in it. No foul play is suspected in Palumbo's death, but an official cause of death has not been released. An Ithaca native was arrested for forcible touching, said Ithaca police. The 20-year-old Ithaca man is now facing charges for forcibly touching two people and then fleeing the scene. Ithaca police have been on the search for the suspect ever since the incident, which occurred on October 27th. 
The man is charged with two counts of forcible touching and is scheduled to appear at city court on a later date. For Williams Trulakis, I'm Selene Tutash, WICB News. Many people working on how to accurately educate young people about climate change. There is information all over the internet about what it is and what the effects are that educators might not know how to even start teaching their students about the issue. Researchers at the Museum of the Earth in the Cayuga Nature Center, along with other scholars, have put together a book for educators across the country to use to help solve this issue. Production director Jay Bradley brings us this story. One of the most difficult things when it comes to climate change is figuring out how to teach it. There's so much information out there, and particularly when it comes to climate change, often a teacher can be overwhelmed. If you do a Google search for something, you'll get more answers than you could possibly deal with. And how do you sort through that, and particularly if you're not an expert? That was Alexandra Moore, a senior research associate at the Paleontological Research Institute, which you might know as the home to the Museum of the Earth and Cayuga Nature Center, just outside the city of Ithaca along Cayuga Lake. And what she and her team have been working on reaches well beyond just here in Ithaca. The Teacher-Friendly Guide to Climate Change, a book published in 2017 by PRI scientists Ingrid Zabel, Don Haas, and Robert Ross, has been subject to a massive Teach Climate Science outreach campaign since its release. That outreach campaign is getting this book into teachers' hands across the country. As of the two-year mark, we've been able to put resources in the hands of 50,000 teachers in 40 states, including every public high school science teacher in 15 states. Moore contributed to the book, but she says her main role is to get it out to the world. And she really means it. Their end goal? to get it into the hands of every high school science teacher in the country. And that 50,000 mark that they've been able to hit in these two years? So that's a quarter of all the teachers, public high school science teachers in the country. So now we're working to see if we can get to half. In the book, PRI attempts to make the content valuable to teachers both through its ease of understanding and interactivity. Kelly Gabrowski, a high school earth science teacher in Hamburg, New York, said the book helped better prepare her, as it was tough to teach without something to bring it all together. I know initially when I started teaching about climate change, which was well before two years ago, I didn't really know where to turn. There wasn't a lot of like one-stop shops for teachers to say, here's like all the important stuff that you need to teach your kids about climate change. And this does that. Like It brings everything together. And since getting the book about two years ago, she's been able to put it to work in her classroom. In some of my classes, I won't um, be able to like come up with a great graph for temperature versus carbon dioxide over the past 200 years. It's hard to find that. You know, you Google it, and then you're like, okay, now I need to figure out if this source is credible. And so if you go to the book and you find like that section, it'll have those graphs that you, you kind of want to portray to your students. And so you can use them straight from the PDF, or you can go to the source that it, it tells you to go to. So I think there's great resources that are connected to it based on where they got their information from. So what inspired this? The Climate Change book is the 10th of the Teacher-Friendly Guide series, and none of the others have been sent out. So why this one? Well, it turns out that false information can spread more effectively than what's supported sometimes, and PRI wanted to fight it. 
right at the time that this book was going to press. There's an organization out of Chicago called the Heartland Institute. They are pretty conservative, pretty opposed to anybody teaching, thinking about, or promoting climate change as a cause for concern for humanity. And so at that time, they mailed out to 200,000 teachers all across the country this little booklet called Why Scientists Disagree About Climate Change. This is a booklet about climate change denial, it's deception dressed as science, and it's meant to deceive. And so they got to work. Our book was on its way to the printer, and we were sort of sitting around saying, wow, wouldn't it be really cool if we could send out 200,000 copies of the Teacher-Friendly Guide to Climate Change? And so I'm the one that sat up in my chair and said, well, let's try. Moore says that what they've done so far has been made possible through a lot of fundraising and outreach. In these two years, they've raised almost $140,000 for the Teach Climate Science Initiative. I got a copy of the Teacher-Friendly Guide probably within months of receiving a copy of the Heartland Institute's, you know, kind of climate-denying book for science teachers in my mailbox because they just mass sent them to science educators around the country. That was Adam Gallwitzer, an earth science teacher at Chautauqua Lake Secondary School in Mayville, New York. After seeing what the Heartland Institute booklet really was, he wanted something that could counter it. I hoped that there was like something else sometime that I could purchase that would be along the lines of what the, the TFG is, but, um, but I didn't know, I wasn't aware of anything out there like that. So I remember when I heard that this was coming, uh, feeling a sense of excitement and urgency, like I, I want that as soon as I can get it. While the Teacher-Friendly Guide to Climate Change remains free online as a PDF on PRI's website, that doesn't cut it for actually getting the information to people. Actually reach out, and particularly if we're trying to reach everybody, not just the people who are highly motivated or early adopters, um, it's much more important to actually be able to put a physical thing in somebody's hand than to um, just say, hey, we've got this really cool website, why don't you guys come check it out? You know, that's, that's not very effective, and we know that. We know that from the uh, sort of research that we've done on that. Just putting the books in teachers' hands, though, isn't the only part of the initiative. We also develop resources to accompany the book, so instead of just um, reading the book and saying, okay, now what I do, uh, we want to try to support teachers, so help them with activities and things that they can actually use with their students in the classroom, in the field. Um, and we also do uh, teacher professional development, which are workshops for teachers. Either we will go to where they are and do something, or a bunch of them will come to where we are. And while they've accomplished a lot, the work fundraising and reaching out isn't done yet. And PRI still needs support to get to the finish line. Whatever we get to is, is what we'll take because every single book that I send out, every single teacher that we interact with is one more person who is able to then reach out to their students. And one of the reasons that we really like reaching out to teachers is there's an automatic multiplier in that. So every teacher on average works with about 100 students. So if I've sent books to 50,000 teachers, then we've reached 5 million students. And that's really cool. For WICB News, I'm Jay Bradley. We'll be right back after a short break. Coming up, we'll hear from Raymond Ghazi, a professor at Ithaca College. 
It takes a little over an hour and can save up to three lives. You know, donating blood. Ithaca and Tompkins County have tons of opportunities to give blood throughout the year. With the Red Cross, you can either make an appointment or just walk right on in. To find a blood drive near you, head to redcrossblood.org or call 1-800-RED-CROSS. This message brought to you by WICB Ithaca. Want to hear more female artists on the Station for Innovation? Tune in to Eve Out Loud to hear a variety of female-fronted music. Sunday nights at 8 on 92 WICB. Welcome back to Ithaca Now on 92 WICB. I'm your host, Himadri Said. Raymond Ghazi is a journalism professor at Ithaca College, and his experience in the field goes way back. In the 1960s, he found himself at the Berkeley riots with his camera. He captured all the moments he could, including moments in which his own life was at risk. WICB correspondent Vedant Akhari sat down with Professor Ghazi to hear more about this time in his life. I am here with Professor Raymond Ghazi from Ithaca College. Hey, Professor, thanks for agreeing to be interviewed. Thank you. Can you just tell us what led to the Berkeley protests in the 1960s? There were no shortage of uh, causes to be protesting. Uh, everyone was, uh, every man was uh, registered for the draft and so could be drafted and sent to Vietnam. Um, but there were uh, movements like, for instance, in nearby Oakland, the um, Black Panthers were uh, founded and, and uh, actually doing a lot of stuff. And uh, they spilled over onto the campus. And so there was a lot of, a lot of 60s activity in Berkeley. And so how and why were you involved with this political unrest on Berkeley's campus? Well, I was there as a graduate student uh, studying American history. I was not really uh, involved, but uh, in the um, incidents that I had, uh, I took a lot of photographs of and, and then showed in class it was with People's Park. This was in uh, the 1969 spring. I got involved because, well, you're walking around campus and uh, suddenly you're, you're blocked by a group of soldiers saying you can't go this way. Uh, you notice and uh, you, you become involved. Specifically, how were you involved with this movement on campus against these soldiers and what, what 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 all was going on on Berkeley campus well this uh began with the um uh people's park and it was a uh a, a block really of uh land that the uh, university of california had bought and had leveled the apartment buildings and houses uh, that were on it, and they were going to turn it into athletic fields. But it took a long time, and so this um, uh, park area got uh, inhabited, in a way, by uh, various street people and uh, people setting up little shops. And, of course, 
uh, a lot of drug dealing going on. And this was something that um, the uh, administration uh, at UC, of course, did not like. And so one day, very early in the morning, the uh, administration brought in some bulldozers and kicked everybody out of People's Park and put up a fence around it. And um, word spread, of course, and there was a, a noon rally, and uh, people went from there to uh, actually try and tear down the fence. And so that's when they called in the local Alameda County sheriffs, and um, that's when the whole thing began. And the sheriffs came and actually started shooting at people. Mm -hmm. And um, that's that's when it began. You showed me one of your photographs, and that showed police officers um, throwing tear gas at protesters, correct? Yes. That was a pretty risky photo to take. And my next question is, why did you consider it important to capture these events in photographs? Well, it was uh, visually stunning. It was uh, beautiful, clear, sunny California day, and these uh, county sheriffs in uh, khaki uniforms walking around the street, and then uh, the the crowds of people in their colorful clothes, and and sort of nobody knowing what was going to go on, and then all of a sudden shooting started right and it was just totally dramatic it was and i didn't really think about it much it just was clear to me that um, i should be taking pictures of this what do you remember most vividly from the protests and which could include any of the photographs you took uh what i remember most really is being shot at and uh, it happened a couple of different times and once I took some pictures of it, and um, once I didn't, the um, experience of being shot at is uh, very strange because you know you could be in big trouble, but uh, at the same time, you don't really see the bullets. You don't really hear the bullets. Let me tell you one, one uh, thing that happened. I was with a crowd of people and we were on Telegraph Avenue and the um, Alameda County Sheriff's came and, and started shooting people and people were dropping in the streets and um, their friends were running up to them and I realized I, I had actually brought my wife up to see some of this and uh, I said, look, we got to get out of here. And so we we got out of the line of fire. Later, the some of the people who had been shot uh, brought suit against the Alameda County sheriffs, and they wanted to know if there were any witnesses or people who could testify about what had happened. And so I called them up and I said, yeah, you know, I, I was there and I saw people being shot. And uh, so they said to me, well, okay, where were you? So I you know, explained where I was. And so, well, about three people were shot there. Can you tell me what uh, any of them were wearing, and I could not. And they could not use me 
as a witness in this trial, I was legally worthless. And it, it really struck me that uh, if, if I come into a situation like this again, I need to really look carefully and remember details if this is going to play out into anything legal. Right. So how did the lawsuit turn out, even though you weren't able to corroborate much? Well, people, there were uh, people corroborating, and of course there were wounded people, and there were photographs and so on. But the um, defense claimed that there was a dangerous crowd and the, the students uh, were unruly and had attacked the uh, Alameda County sheriffs and they were simply firing in self-defense. Mm -hmm. And that uh, the jury believed that. And so nobody was uh, really punished for having shot people. And that wasn't true, as you said earlier, that they weren't being unruly or violent, correct? Yes, basically not. Um, this uh, uh, situation, this uh, culture of protest in Berkeley has evolved since then, and many of the protests have become very violent, but uh, this was not uh, violent at the moment. What do you mean, like, they've become violent? Like, is there a specific example you can give us of? Well, they just um, tend to uh, uh, trash stores and loot things and uh, go way off campus uh, into downtown. And I would say I last read about this sort of thing um, a couple of years ago. Uh, one of the problems is that news does not, news from Berkeley and the West Coast does not necessarily travel east very well because there's a three-hour time difference. And so it's uh, three o'clock and things are happening in Berkeley, but it's six o'clock back east, and it's kind of past the news deadline time to get on to the local news and so on. For instance, People's Park. This is something that people from the uh, West Coast know about. But I ask people today uh, on the East Coast about it, and uh, people have not heard of it. Mm -hmm. We're talking about contemporary times. And so the controversies, the issues that were being protested back in the 1960s, do you feel like they are still relevant in today's time? Uh, at the moment, uh, young people are not uh, being drafted. They're not uh, forced to register for a military system and uh, perhaps uh, called in to serve. Uh, that might change. That might change. And uh, uh, women, I think, as well as men, uh, would uh, be forced to register for the draft, and some of them would be drafted. Um, so I think if that happens, then we're back to the 60s kind of mentality that uh, people have. But uh, in general, I think the um, there are still very big controlling institutions that are uh, kind of doing things that 
a lot of people are not necessarily happy with. And uh, it's not quite clear how people can get heard and how things can be pressured into changing. And um, uh, we see it around the world uh, with uh, Hong Kong and uh, in Iraq, uh, terrible uh, street demonstrations, violence, uh, and uh, people being killed. And uh, it's, so it's still, still going on. Uh, these are times that uh, sometimes uh, they're, they're scary and they are strange. And that uh, I have become a believer in, in being as nonviolent as possible and uh, just trying to see all sides of the situation and uh, hope that this will uh, work out for the best. Thank you, Professor Ghazi, for the interview. Thank you. For WICB News, I'm Vedanta Kari. That's all for this edition of Ithaca Now. Tune into our podcast two weeks from now at 7 p.m. for more stories and news impacting the Ithaca community. You can find all of our content on wicb.org. And if you'd like to listen to past broadcasts, find our podcast for free on soundcloud.com slash WICB. For more updates throughout this week, follow us on social media. Search for WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And before we go, we have some thank yous for tonight. Manager of Television and Radio Operations, Jeremy Maynard, WICB Station Manager, Peter Champelli, and our new staff, Executive Director, Bridget Bright, Managing Director, Jacqueline Agagian, and Production Director, Jay Bradley, and Content Manager, Samantha Danziger, and our correspondents, William Strelikis, Selin Tudor, Jay Bradley, and Vedant Akwari. All of the music from our show comes from Dr. Dundiff, who hails from Louisville, Kentucky. Thank you for joining us and have a wonderful rest of your week. I'm Himadri Seth and this has been Ithaca Now on 92 WICB.